Okay, our topic tonight out of the book of Jeremiah, and actually we're going to be transitioning tonight. We've been studying the kings of Israel, kings and prophets, and uh, we've been doing Jeremiah along that line. And, and, uh, and so now Jeremiah and Ezekiel lived at the same time in different areas. Jeremiah was in Jerusalem, and Ezekiel was one of the captives that was taken to Babylon. And so Jeremiah was prophesying in Jerusalem and Israel, and Ezekiel was prophesying in Babylon among the captives. And that, yet they lived at the same time. And so tonight's sermon, both have the same line in it, which is very interesting. I don't know who plagiarized who, or the, the same God that inspired both of them, inspired both of them with the very same line. We do know that at least some of the messages, if not all of the messages of Jeremiah reached Babylon, or at least were commissioned to go to Babylon, uh, well, we do know that Daniel was reading the books of Jeremiah, so we do know that, uh, that they made it to Babylon. And so, no doubt, uh, Ezekiel had an opportunity to read them as well or hear about them as well. And so, uh, the title this week is Sour Grapes, because that's mentioned in both Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, which we've studied a few different uh, verses, or all the other verses, out of that chapter uh, on different weeks, uh, except this one, and Ezekiel chapter 18, which we'll be looking at in full tonight. Okay, so on a timeline, where we're at is way down at the end. Again, we started with Saul, uh, actually Saul and David and the Psalms and Solomon and the Proverbs and all the kings and prophets all along. We're down to the very end of the chart of ancient Israel uh, and Judah. Israel, northern tribe, has been taken captive already. And so we're down to Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah again at the same time, and we're up to the last king of Israel, Ezekiel's prophesying during the last king of Israel. Um, the last king of Israel is mentioned. He might have been around prophesying before that, some of the other kings, but only the last one that I remember in any, anyway uh, is mentioned uh, during Ezekiel's prophecy. And so that's where we're at on the timeline. And so we'll pick it up in Jeremiah 31, verse 29. In those days they shall say no more. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Right? So you get the, the premise there, right? If you eat the grapes, the sour grapes, you're the one going to experience it, not your children. Right? It, it doesn't, sour grapeness doesn't, it's not inheritary. You don't inherit uh, edged teeth because of eating sour grapes. So that was Jeremiah, and now out of Ezekiel, chapter 18, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. And so it must have been a very popular proverb, uh, because it was mentioned in Jerusalem and in Israel, and it's mentioned all the way, they took it with them to Babylon, and still repeating that same proverb. And so both Jeremiah and Ezekiel thought this was a dangerous enough heresy that it needed to be stopped, or at least God felt it was a dangerous enough heresy that it needed to be stopped, so he inspired both prophets to put it into their writings. So, it should be important for us as well, if it's at least in two different books of the Bible, then it should be important for us to understand 
and, and study and, 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 and learn from. So let's look at, so I mean, you know, it kind of seems like a strange thing. I mean, here we're in a modern society and we know that if my dad eats sour grapes, it's not going to affect my teeth, right? You know, so why should we even worry about that? We're not that dumb to, to think that uh, what my dad eats uh, is going to directly affect me that same day. But yet still today, in many societies, in many cultures, in many uh, religions, among many different people groups, this very thing is being taught. Now, not so much about sour grapes, but that the effects of the Father and that's true. will affect us. See, that's a primary basis for a lot of psychology today. That, well, all the problems I have are because of my parents. Somewhere in my past, somebody did something to me, and that's why I am the way I am today. I have spoken with people, and they've been telling me this problem, and it's just horrible. I mean, whoa, I just, phew, unbelievable. And then I find out it took place 30 years ago. And they are talking about it as vividly as if they were experiencing it right then and there. And so certainly, the things that happen to us do affect us, but according to what God has told both these prophets, do not let it affect you. Say no more that because my dad ate sour grapes, that that's why I am the way I am today. Stop using that as a crutch. We need to be able to get past that and get over that, and that's what this chapter teaches us. And so whether you have believed that all your problems are as a result of your parents, or whether you have experienced dramatic problems as a result of something that was done to you by some parent, some teacher, some uncle, some aunt, some grandparent, or someone in your life, and certainly the things that people do to us will dramatically affect us and impact us. But we do not have to allow it to define us. We can overcome it and move past it and grow out of it. And that's what I believe this chapter wants to teach us. So let's continue. All souls are mine, says uh, the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So there's a lot even in this short verse 4. One thing, one of the ways to get past what has been done to us, whether inherited or cultivated, whether we inherited certain tendencies, whether there's a natural line, and I know that some people will call that racism, but you know, it's interesting, if you were looking at getting a puppy and you looked at some, you can go to a library or go online and you can research all these different breeds or a horse or lots of different animals and you can research and it'll tell you what this breed is like. 
It'll say, you know, Labrador is good for this, and, and, uh, and Dobermans are not good for this, you know, and, and a Greyhound is not a great watchdog, you know, or, or whatever. You know, it'll say these various different things about these different dogs. And you can expect that if you get this certain breed, that these might be primarily the characteristics that you'll find in that dog. And we have no problem with identifying dogs that way. But if we say that regarding people, and people groups, well then it's racism. But there are natural tendencies that do come that we do inherit. But that does not mean that we need to allow that to define us, especially if they're negative characteristics, especially if they're sinful characteristics. And so we will have a natural inkling towards certain behaviors because of what we've inherited. But here in this verse, God says that he is the father of us all. And so when we have him as our father, it totally cuts off and negates the negative effects that we have received from our fathers eating sour grapes or being sour pusses or whatever. God then becomes our father and then rules and then we inherit from him. So there's the inherited tendencies that we have because, again, of our background, our lineage. And there's also cultivated tendencies. If we grew up in a household and certain behaviors were manifested there, they imprint on us, and then we have a tendency to then copy that and duplicate that, especially in the first three years of our life. And so it's long before we have reasoning powers to say, well, I'm not going to be like that. We, it, it gets imprinted into us, and then we have a propensity to then follow suit with that. Now, maybe as we become adolescents and even teenagers, we might say, well, I am, when I have kids, I am never going to do that to my dad, my kids. I am never going to act that way. I'm never going to say that. <laughs> but then we end up following that same pattern often because it's been imprinted into us. But God can give us victory over that, transform us, change us, because he becomes our father. All souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. And so we claim God as, God claims us as his. And the soul who sins shall die. And that's a pretty plain text. That's a little different of a topic. But it's very clear that even the souls die. There's a false teaching, a different false teaching, that there's some immortal soul, but that, those two words are never placed in the Bible together. The Bible clearly says people die and the souls die as well. Very clear in this text and other places. Yeshua said that uh, fear not him who can destroy the body, but rather fear him referring to God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so in hell, both the soul and the body get destroyed. So anyway, the soul who sins, he shall die. So if the father ate the sour grapes, he's the one who's going to have it affect his teeth, not the kid. Verse 5, if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached the woman during her impurity, during her menstrual cycle, 
If he is not oppressed, so he gives a list of these things not to, that shouldn't be done, that the Torah talks about not being done. And so if a man is just and does not do these things, and it's interesting, it lists these things that should be done, and then what things that should, or things that should not be done, and then things that should be done. So the emphasis here, and we're going to bring this around by the end, but the emphasis here so far anyway, is on what is done and what is not done as far as the man being just, because he does what is lawful and right. We're going to see there's a balance even in this chapter, there's a balance all throughout the Bible between faith and doing. There's a balance and a correlation and a harmony between the two. And we need not separate those two or become unbalanced. We focus too much on law and not on faith, then we are in trouble. And if we focus just on faith and, and negate law, we are not in a good place either. We'll fall off the seesaw. We need to be have a balance there. The scriptures are very balanced. But there is an emphasis here on a man being just because he does not do what the word of God does not approve of. Verse 7. But has restored to the debtor his pledge has robbed no one by violence, has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not exacted usury nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment. This is a just man, a just person, who's doing what is right and not doing what is wrong. He is just before the Lord, or justified before the Lord, doing what is right. If he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord God. And obviously he's talking about eternal life here. He shall live. He will be given eternal life. He'll be blessed here and blessed for eternity. He shall live. Why shall he live? Because he has done what is right. He is just. And he hasn't done what is wrong. So he will be judged based on what he did and did not do. And he's determined by God as being faithful and just. Verse 10. If he has a son, so this righteous man, this just man has a son. If he has a son who is a robber or murderer, who does any of those things and does none of, the thing, none of those duties, but has worshipped idols or defiled his neighbor's wife, if he has oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to idols, or committed abomination, if the son does those things. He's got a righteous father, a just father, but the son is his dirty dog. If he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. And so he also is judged based on what he has done or not done. He'll be held accountable, regardless of how righteous and just his father was. Now that should make common sense. But we have a tendency to think, well, hey, I was raised right, or this child has 
righteous parents or good parents. And people look at our kids and think, well, hey, they should be good kids. They, you know, they're under this good upbringing. And then maybe doing what is right. That doesn't mean they're converted. So we can have an expectation of someone because of their parentage. But God says, no, everyone will be judged individually based on the choices and actions that they have made and that they have done. And that should be plain enough and clear enough. But yet, in big portions of the world today, we have a caste system that says, well, no, this person is born under this lineage, and so they have certain privileges and certain caste system and certain uh, rights, and other people are under a different caste system, and they don't not, cannot break out of that system, and cannot change, and cannot choose a career of their, of their desire, because it, there's these systems set up based on parentage. The Bible says no. Everyone will be judged, everyone will be accountable, everyone is an individual, everyone belongs to God, everyone will stand before God, regardless of what their parents did. And so while we cannot stand before God and blame our parents for our choices, even if they were horrible parents, or grandparents, or again, whoever, that won't cut it in the judgment. Nor can we say, well, hey, my parents were good, and my parents did this, and my parents did that, and my grandparents, and down the line. God's going to look at us, each of us, individually. Not at how good our spouse is, or anyone else we know, but on what we chose and what we did. Clear enough? Verse 14. If, however, he begets a son, so now this is the grandson of the just person. So the just person had an evil child, and then that evil child has, another, has a child. If, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted his eyes to idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor has, and has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld the pledge, nor robbed, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury and, or increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father, he shall surely live." So again, it's very clear. He's making this very clear. Individual. Just man, did right, he'll be good. His son is, doesn't do what's right, he'll be judged, and his soul will die. He has a son who decides to do like the grandfather, not like the father, does what is just and good, he shall live. He'll be just before God. And over and over again, it gave us a list of all these do's and don'ts that will be held for the judgment. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. So even though he had a good father and a good son, like the, the one in the middle didn't do what was right, he will die. 
You cannot claim the righteousness of anyone else, only his own deeds, only his own choices, only his own actions is what will stand in the judgment. Now God, I believe, takes into consideration what has happened to us in our lives. But basically, in the end, it comes down to the choices we have made, regardless of the circumstances that have taken place in our lives. So it's time for us to grow up, be mature, take accountability for our own actions, and stop using everyone else's sins as my crutch. You know, you hear that even at the youngest ages. Well, why'd you do that? Well, Jimmy did it, and everyone else in school is doing it, and we go back to Adam and Eve. They're pointing the fingers at each other, and even at God. So we have this natural tendency to excuse our actions by blaming others. And God here is clearly saying, you can't blame anyone else. Suck it up. Take accountability. Take responsibility. And make right choices. And follow the Lord. Verse 19. Yet you say, why should the Son not bear the guilt of the Father? Well, because the Son has done what is lawful and right. He has kept all the statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. So second time in this chapter, God brings that out. The soul that sins, he shall die. Not the Son, die him for the Father. They ask, why should not the Son bear the guilt? Well, the Son doesn't bear the guilt. Now, in the Ten Commandments, it mentions that the curse will go down to the third and fourth generation. But the blessing to the, was the hundredth generation of those that follow him. There is a natural tendency, again, that will last for a few generations. But we can break that mold. We don't have to hold to that, is what it's saying here. But there is a natural tendency that negative, negative actions will have effect upon our children. And if we've lived without the Lord and raised our children under a, uh, an ungodly parentage, we need to repent of that and ask for God to forgive us and to work even harder in their lives to make up for the wrong parenting that we did. Verse 20. The soul shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Yeah, it's pretty clear. Yeah, he wants it just oh, repeating itself, repeating itself, repeating itself. He wants us to understand this. And again, it's so misunderstood. Maybe logically in society today we say, oh yeah, sure. But we don't. We judge, parent, we judge people based on their parents. We might know their parents and they might be horrible and then we kind of look down on, on them, on the, on the kids, because of what we know about the parents or vice versa. We see some horrible kid and then we get to know that horrible kid and then we all of a sudden have negative thoughts towards the parents, 
even before we met the parents. We begin judging the parents or judging the kids based on what we know about the others. And that's where racism then also comes in because we might know certain people within a people group and then identify the whole people group that way. The Bible says no. Everyone individually, everyone accountability based on choices they've made, not the choices of their parents, their nation, their race, their family, their culture. Look at each person. God looks at each person individually, and we also should look at each person individually. As we understand God, and as we invite God into our heart, it affects how we treat others. And this is how God treats us. This is how God treats humanity. And if we fully understood it and grasped it and took it into ourselves and let the Holy Spirit live in and out of us, this is how we would treat others as well. We will not judge individuals based on their people group or their parents or their children. We'll give everyone a just hearing and treat everyone with the kindness of the Lord. If a wicked man turns from all his sins which he committed, now this is another aspect here, so now he's kind of shifting gears and he's going to bring another whole teaching in here, which is very important as well. Verse 21, if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live and shall not die. None of the transgressions which he committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done. He shall live. And that's good news. So a person living wickedly, right, that middle child that we were reading about in the first few verses, had a righteous father, he chose, the son chose to be wicked, he had a righteous son, but if that wicked one turns from his wickedness, repents, performs teshuva, changes, turns away from the sins, turns to God, and does what is right, and again here the emphasis is on the actions, the doing of the righteous acts, then none of the transgressions which he committed shall be remembered against him. God blots it out, God forgives, God remembers them no more, drops them into the depths of the sea, placed them in his son, in the Messiah, killed it, buried it in the tomb, and resurrects into that person a new life, and changes him and transforms him. And it'll, that transformation will be demonstrated outwardly in his life. He will keep his God's statutes. He will do what is lawful and right. And then he shall live. He shall not die. And that's good news for each one of us because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have made mistakes. All of us have lived at a, some point in time in our life without the Lord. We're all born declared wicked before the Lord because of our inherited tendencies to evil, our natural carnal nature. But God gives us the power to turn from those. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, we are forgiven. And because of the grace of, of the Messiah through the Holy Spirit, we're changed and transformed. And that transformation brings about right actions.
righteous acts. And so the power to turn comes from God. That's a gift that comes from God. The gift of repentance. And so it's possible, no matter how bad, to change. And so we also, if that's how God views us, and we allow God to come and live in us, that's how we will view others. We will always hold out the hope that they will change. Now, of course, until they do change, we need to be on guard and careful. And if they're doing all those horrible things that we just read before, robbing and murdering and all these other things, we shouldn't just allow ourselves to, to and society to become affected by that. But always hoping, praying, and leaving the door open for them to repent and turn and change. Because God can change, and we see that all around us. Hopefully we've seen it in our own lives. We see it in Bible stories. God changing lives, dramatically changing lives. And if we change, then we shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all in the wicked, that the wicked shall die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? This is a very important verse as well. God does not have pleasure in the death of the wicked. Should I have pleasure in that? But yet there's a whole theology out there that, that thinks that God just loves the wicked just roasting and getting, you know, like a barbecue. That God takes pleasure in that. That God takes pleasure in seeing people die and, and, and get shut out of hell. That God is just waiting to find us in some sinful act. God says, no, that's not my character. God doesn't wish that any should die, that should any should perish eternally. That's not God's desire. Now, he's not stupid enough to allow people who lived a life choosing sin, allow them into heaven. But he's always constantly hoping and pleading and working towards them to change. He doesn't desire for them to, to die, and neither should we. And if we have God's spirit, we won't either. Verse 24, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abomination the wicked man does, shall he live? That's a very good question, which it's another hot button topic of theology today. So this chapter, again, it just covers a lot of important truths. So a righteous man doing what is right, but then at some point in time in his life, he turns from that righteousness, turns away from the Lord, chooses to live a sinful life. Will he live? That's what God asks. Should he live eternally? Should he go to heaven just because he followed the Lord, made a profession, and not only made a profession, but lived righteous? He was a righteous man, right? Don't just say he was a professed righteous man. It doesn't say he claimed to be. It says he was a righteous man. So he was following God. He did surrender his life fully to God. And so he asks, basically, can he lose that salvation? Can he lose that righteousness? Can he lose that just state? That's what God's asking. So let's see what God says. It doesn't matter what I say. For that matter, it doesn't matter what you say. That matter doesn't matter what anyone says, but what God says. So let's see how God answers that specific question. 
all the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed, because of them he shall die. So it doesn't matter what profession you made when you were 13 or when you were 23 or any other time, if the, we do not endure to the end, we will not be saved. But the Bible says that he that does endure to the end will be saved. I think that's clear enough from the word of God. Now I know there will be people who say, are you saying? I didn't say anything. We just read the word of God. God answered his own question. All of his righteousness will not be remembered if he chose to depart from it. Same with Lucifer. Lucifer was there in heaven, covering cherub around God's throne. He chose to turn from it, and thus he was kicked out of heaven. God would do that to one of his most highest angels. Why wouldn't he do the same with us? Verse 25, yea, you say the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? We want to say, oh, but I made my profession. Oh, I, I was good before. Won't that count? That should count. This is not fair. Not fair, not fair, not fair, not fair. That says, my way is fair, my way is right, my way is just, my way is best. When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. So he repeats himself again. He doesn't want us to miss that. When a righteous man turns from his righteousness, so again, he's saying he's a righteous man, not just professed, not just, but actually transformed, changed, righteous, turns from it, he will die in his iniquity. Now, God's not wanting to catch us dying in our iniquity. He's not waiting till we commit some iniquity and then he shoots us down dead. As he said already, he does not have any pleasure in that. He gives us opportunity and opportunity and opportunity to turn from our wicked ways and come to him. Again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness, which he committed, and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. It works both ways. The wicked can change, can consider his actions and his life, and by God's grace turn and do what is right and just, and he will live eternally. And a righteous person has the free choice always to turn from that righteousness, turn his back on God, and walk away. That's the freedom he gave to Adam and Eve. They were in the Garden of Eden, can't get any better than that. And they chose to turn away. Now it seems that they chose to turn back to the Lord, and God accepted them. Verse 29, Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair, and your ways which are not fair? I think Ezekiel got paid by the word. <laughs> over and over again. Nonetheless, it's good stuff. Verse 30, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways. God judges 
according to how we live out our lives. Says the Lord God, repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. The God is pleading with us to turn from our wicked ways and turn to him. And now he tells us how that happens. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Here's now the balance. They've been talking all these actions and will be judged on all these actions. But how is it those, those actions take place? How do we get the ability to do what is right and just? How do we get the ability to walk in God's laws and God's statutes? It's not just by grit, not at all by grit and determination. It's by getting a new heart. God changes us on the inside. He births us anew under a new parent. No longer the inherited tendencies of Adam and Eve's sinfulness. No longer the inherited tendencies of our parents and grandparents and all the way back. No longer the cultivated sinfulness that we grew up with and had taken upon us. No longer the sour grapes that our parents ate. No longer the sins that were committed against us. We get a new heart and we become new creatures. We get a new spirit, new desires, a new life. And God puts that new heart in us, the new spirit in us, and then out comes the right actions. So we're saved by the new heart and will be judged by the right actions because the right actions prove that there's a new heart. If we have the new heart, if we have God's heart, he takes out our heart of stone, he puts in his heart. He takes out our carnal mind and he puts in his mind. Let this mind be in you that was in Yeshua the Messiah. He gives us his mind. Gives us his desires. Gives us his choices. And then he gives us his power, his spirit, to empower us to do what is right. And then naturally will come forth right actions. Just as easily and as naturally as is for us to do wrong, and it's natural and very easy for us to do wrong. That's how we're all born. We're all born selfish. Just look at any baby. Any child, we're selfish through and through. That's our natural tendency. But when we have the new heart and new spirit, then it becomes natural to do what is right and what is just and what is lawful. And so how can we tell what heart we have? We look at our actions. We look at our thoughts. We think, look at our word, listen to our words. Look at our deeds. Look at how we've been spending Time. Look at how we've been spending money. Look at how we've been treating others. Look at how we've been thinking about others. That tells what's in the heart. By the outside. By the actions. Demonstrate whose heart we have. 
And when we reveal, when God reveals to us, when God convicts us that our actions and our words and our thoughts have been sinful, what do we do? We turn from our wickedness by turning to the Lord, giving him the hard, the hard heart, giving him the sinful heart. He gladly takes it away. He gladly puts it into himself. And it kills him, poisons him, destroys him. And he gives us his heart. And then we live. And the righteous actions come forth. And there's the balance between law and grace. There's the balance between mercy and truth. There's the balance of the scriptures. There's the balance between justification and sanctification. It all comes together in harmony together. And Ezekiel beautifully portrays it and brings it out. Why should you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. Again, he's not wanting for us to die. He's not wanting for anyone to die that's why we're still here on this earth, because God is very long-suffering, and he knows there's a lot of people on this earth who are going to die without even knowing him, without even having the opportunity to know him. And he's waiting for us to go and tell them to turn and live. Because that's what he wants us to do, and that's what he wants everyone to have the opportunity to do. Turn from our wicked ways and live. So as we pray together tonight, Again, a lot of topics, a lot of things covered in that one chapter. You've been blaming your parents, blaming your actions, blaming your life on someone else, anyone else. Your parents, grandparents, or whoever else. It's time to just bury that. Let go of that. Leave it at the foot of God's feet. Leave it at God's feet. Leave it at Calvary. Surrender it to the Lord. Yeah, I'm sure what they did was horrible and unexcusable. They'll be held accountable for it. But it's time to stop letting it affect us. And accept God's new heart and God's new spirit. Accepting God as our father. God as our parent. And take on a new life. And so if you've been holding on to something, holding on to some excuse, holding on to some action, some habit, some deed, because that's just how it is in your family, and excusing it away. And when we pray in another moment, I invite you just to surrender that to the Lord. Or if you've been blaming these others for your actions, still holding on to anger and hurt and pain and grief and guilt, bitterness, and you just want to surrender that, give that over to the Lord. It just tears us down and eats us up. It doesn't have to affect you anymore. And so whether it's been five minutes or five days or five years or 50 years ago, surrender it to the Lord, give it over to the Lord and lay it before him receive his new heart and his new spirit to transform you. Any of us here have been living a wicked life? Maybe you were righteous at one time. Maybe you were doing, maybe you surrendered your life to the Lord. You had a new birth experience and you were following the Lord and living what was righteous and telling other people about the Lord and were excited about the Lord. And yet you sense that you've been slipping. 
Yeah, you're still doing the same things. Yes, obviously you're here at services tonight, but it's become routine, it's become a habit. But there's no joy in it. Your heart's not in it anymore. And your heart has become hard again and corrupt again. Surrender that to the Lord and turn back to him and experience the joy of the Lord once again and on a daily basis and on a continual growing basis. If you've been fed some wrong theology, that if you were righteous, then you could never be lost. You see now tonight the word of God very clearly pointing out that we'll be judged by the choices we end up with, the actions we end up with. You want to surrender that theology to the Lord so that he can change your mind. It takes a miracle. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. It takes God's spirit to change our minds even from what habits and taught teachings have been ingrained into us. And we want to surrender that to the Lord, lay it at his feet, let him change you and transform you. Because again, how we look at God, how we see God is how we will treat others. And so then also in that aspect, if you've been judging others based on their parents or their children or their culture or their people group or their race or their nationality, I invite you to surrender that to the Lord in a moment when we pray. Let him forgive you. Let him cleanse you. Let him give you his heart and his mind and his character so that we judge everyone individually and treat everyone individually with God's love and God's respect and God's mercy. And also, if you've been wishing somebody to die, <laughs> we read tonight, God says, I don't wish anyone to die. I have no desire, no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And maybe this person's really wicked. <laughs> maybe this person's really horrible. You've been hoping that he'd die, or maybe not die, but move away. Or maybe you'd get a new job somewhere else, like in Alaska somewhere. Instead of praying for his conversion and his transformation and looking for ways and praying for ways to share God's love with him. The moment when we pray, God's bringing someone to your mind. Surrender the negative thoughts towards them and ask God to give us love and mercy towards them. So if any of those areas apply to you, let us Surrender them to the Lord and let him give us his new spirit, his new heart every single day for him to live out his righteous acts in us and through us and for us. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we're thankful for your word through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And we do pray, Lord, that your spirit would be in us, that you take out our carnal hearts and our carnal minds. You fill us with your mind and your spirit in your heart, and that you live your righteous acts out of us. Forgiving us, cleansing us, transforming us, and using us to love and minister to all those around us. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.